Hello, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. And we hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. And if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Well, we are in week five of a series that we're calling Finding Jesus in Genesis. What we're learning to do uh, is read the Bible carefully to see how New Testament writers saw Jesus as the interpretive center for all of the scriptures. Uh, And thereby, when they were kind of reading what we now know as the Old Testament, they were finding Jesus in all sorts of ways um, through that interpretive lens. Uh, it's a reminder for us, uh, this, seri- this whole series is a reminder for us that if our interpretive lens for reading the Bible is, uh, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it, or something similar, uh, then we probably need to dig a little bit deeper. We, we probably need a different sort of lens through which to understand the scriptures. And in fact, we do need to understand and interpret the scriptures. The Bible is an ancient, complex story Uh, that tells about God's interactions with humanity. And if we're going to make any sense of it at all, we need to have an anchor. We need to have an interpretive center. And what we're finding out is that that interpretive center, for those who wrote what we know as the New Testament, that interpretive center was Jesus. Um, And that's, in fact, what it means to read the Bible as Christians, is to recognize that the Bible does not first bear witness to its own authority, but it bears witness to the authority of the living word of God, who is the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. Right? And we talk a lot about biblical authority, and I think that's probably a good and healthy thing. Uh, But when we talk about biblical authority, we need to understand that the Bible does not point to itself. It points beyond itself to the person of Jesus. Uh, And so what we're doing essentially then is reading the Old Testament through the lens of Christ, discovering all sorts of ways that Christ is present, Christ is predicted, Christ is prefigured, And so far, we have found Jesus in the creation story, the Adam and Eve narrative, in Noah's story, and then last week in the story of Melchizedek, uh, which is really fun to say. Uh, And actually, I had a couple of people tell me that this was maybe the first time they'd ever heard of Melchizedek. Um, And so I'm glad to hear that that has been helpful for you. And so while last week we looked at a relatively unknown figure in Melchizedek, this this morning I want to turn our attention to one of the best known and most important figures in all of the scriptures, and that is the story of Abraham. Uh, Now, of course, Abraham, we're introduced to Abraham early on in Genesis, kind of comes to a highlight in Genesis chapter 12 with the calling of Abraham to leave his land and go to a land that God will show him. Uh, The story of Abraham then extends all the way until Genesis chapter 25, where we get the story of the death of Abraham. And in that, there's any number of things that we could talk about and think about in order to find Jesus. But if you're like me, when you think of the story of Abraham, there's one story that kind of bubbles up toward the top. Uh, It's a story that quite mysteriously we learned in Sunday school. (laughs) It's the story of Abraham and Isaac. Okay? The story of Abraham and Isaac. Uh, This is a story of Abraham being called to sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. I want to read it. It's found in Genesis chapter 22, uh, the first 14 verses. The story extends beyond there, but we'll read until verse 14. Uh, And this morning I'm reading from the New Living Translation. So Genesis chapter 22, the first 14 verses, says this. Uh, Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. 
Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. Now the next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey, took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out to the place that God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stand here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there, then we will come right back. So Abraham placed the wood on the burnt offering of Isaac's shoulders, or the wood for the, for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders, and while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, uh, we have the fire and the wood, the boy said, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, Abraham answered. And they both walked on together. When they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on top of the wood, and Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Do not lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram, sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Now Abraham named that place Yahweh Yireh, which means the Lord will provide. And to this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I need to begin this message with a moment of honesty. I find this text deeply troubling. <laughs> um, God asks Abraham to kill his son, uh, which, by the way, if you're reading the rest of the scriptures, goes against numerous other passages in the Bible that forbid child sacrifice and name it as utterly evil, because apparently they needed to do that in, in the world, <laughs> in the ancient world, to name it as such. Uh, but this is actually the first time that we're introduced to the idea of child sacrifice and where it's presented to us as God's idea. Uh, secondly, Abraham somehow accepts this uh, and fairly easily from the way the text reads, right? And of course, we could go into the cultural moment where they were in and how ancient culture was like all sorts of crazy in a lot of different ways. Uh, and that maybe this was commonplace, that the ancient gods, as they were understood, sometimes did, in fact, require child sacrifice, that it wasn't all that outrageous as we would see it today. Um, and so we could kind of look and focus in on the cultural moment, and that might help a little bit, but in my view, it doesn't help that much. Uh, Abraham seems a little too willing in this scenario. Also, this is presented to us as God's idea or God's test of Abraham's faithfulness and obedience. Um, and I think to myself, surely the creative God of the universe can come up with a different way to test faithfulness and obedience, right? I mean, is this the best God could do to test this? I don't know if you've ever been with me, um, but this text is deeply troubling. Uh, perhaps more troubling than uh, the text itself is some of the ways in which we've come to preach and to understand this text. And I'm going to create a huge problem here this morning before I hopefully get to a good uh, kind of hopeful message. But 
in understanding this passage, we're really left with, with one of two choices. Uh, one is we can look at this text from a moralistic point of view. And we could kind of identify Abraham as one who is willing to obey God at any and all costs, even to the point of sacrificing his own son. You could paint all kinds of positive pictures out of that. But in my view, some of the most horrific evils in the world and throughout history have been done in the name of God. Have been done by folks who themselves thought they were following the will of God. Are you with me? Uh, and so the moralistic understanding doesn't quite get us there. Uh, the other thing is you do have, in fact, a foreshadowing of Jesus, right? Uh, in fact, some people would say this is just an easy text to preach because look, you have Jesus right here as the sacrifice. Uh, and in fact, you do have a foreshadowing of Jesus who becomes the sacrificed ram. Uh, but then you also have a God who follows through on the very thing that God did not want Abraham to do when we understand the cross as God sort of sacrificing um, his own son. Uh, so let me be clear. If you're here this morning, if you're listening online, and this passage has never caused any trouble for you, uh, or the ways we under, have understood this passage are find resonance in your heart, I am not here in any way to try to change that. I'm not here in any way to try to change that. But if you're here this morning and this text you find quite troubling uh, and you're kind of in the same boat as me and you're like, how in the world are we supposed to understand this without sort of pitting Jesus and God against one another as God kind of kills Jesus rather than Jesus revealing the grace and forgiveness of God, which is how I've come to see the cross. I don't do a lot of self-promotion, but if that whole thing is interesting or like to you, uh, a couple years ago we did a series called The Cross in which we took five or six weeks to kind of understand how do we view uh, what is happening on the cross and the work of salvation. We did that right around Easter. So if that's of interest to you, you can find that online. Uh, so I'm not, try I'm not here to try to change anybody's mind if, uh, if this, this passage is encouraging to you and not troubling. Uh, but if you're like me, I think we can find a way of understanding this passage and find Jesus. And so this text troubles me, it puzzles me, but here it is in the scriptures and we need to deal with it. And we need to deal with it as it is presented to us. And so I'm going to try to do my best this morning to do exactly that. Take the passage as it's presented to us and find Jesus. So let's embark on that journey together. Uh, it seems to me then that there are two realities in this passage that are kind of at pushing and pulling with one another. They're maybe in tension with one another. You might even call them contradictions. And these contradictions or these tensions, if you will, are between testing and providing. Uh, testing is there, there is a command that has been given that is in direct contradiction to a promise that had been previously given. Uh, that is that Isaac, Abraham's son, is the fulfillment of the promise of God in Abraham's life that Abraham would become the father of a nation, that he would have many descendants. And his first descendant uh, is, in fact, Isaac. And so you have this, quite literally, the embodiment of a promise. And in contradiction to that, God then gives a command to sacrifice this promise, right? This is, this is a tension in the text that we need to recognize, um, and so there's tension between this promise of life and this word of death. There is a test 
where God appears to require complete obedience. And then there is provision, where God is the giver of good gifts and the faithful one who provides. So you have testing and you have providing. Now, to our modern, sophisticated minds, the idea of God testing us seems primitive, right? Uh, While testing is present in the New Testament, there is also clear indication that Christians for a long, long time have always wanted to avoid the idea of God testing us. In fact, the Lord's Prayer itself includes a line, lead us not into temptation, Essentially, asking God to keep us from moments of testing where we would be forced to choose. Perhaps we're afraid that the testing of our faith would prove our faith too weak for the task, right? And so we pray every week in this church, we pray the Lord's Prayer, which includes the line, don't, Father, would you lead us not into temptation? And yet we can't avoid the fact that the New Testament sometimes bears witness to the idea of God testing us. In fact, I would say that there's some sense of testing that seems built into the very fabric of following the way of Jesus. And I'm not, I truly stand before you as one uncertain about whether God actively tests our faith or not. I don't know. That is a complicated and nuanced theological question for which I have thoughts, but not answers, right? Uh, Which, by the way, I think that's probably a pretty good posture when it comes to anything theology. I've got some thoughts, but I don't have answers, (laughs) okay? Uh, And so I'm not sure about, does God actively test our faith or is kind of built into the fabric of, of living our faith out, we have opportunities or situations in which that faith is tested. Here's What I mean, all of us have opportunities to walk in the way of Jesus or be given over to the ways of the present age. And we have multiples of those opportunities each and every day. So each and every, each day, I would say, are in some small way and sometimes big ways, our faith is tested. We are given an opportunity to either say yes to the ways of Jesus or be given over to the ways of the world. I mean, Each time we come across a politically charged post on social media, we're tested. (laughs) Every time we make a budget for our household, we're tested. Like, does does the way in which we spend and and save and and give our money reflect the, the priorities of the kingdom of God? Or not, right? That every time we make a budget, every time, uh, each time we hold a ballot in our hand, like you kind of get a sense of what I'm saying, that every day we have multiple opportunities to say yes to the ways of Jesus or not. And so there are multiple opportunities all the time to choose the way of Jesus or to go along with the common sense of our time. And this sounds very black and white, right? I mean, this sounds like just, it's just, it's either this or this. But admittedly, this is much more nuanced and complicated than I'm communicating it. Admittedly, sometimes the collective wisdom of our time is in fact in alignment with Jesus, and sometimes it's not. Admittedly, sometimes the collective wisdom about the way of Jesus isn't the way of Jesus, and we need correction, right? And so these are, these are often complex, nuanced things and are not, as clear, not nearly as black and white as I may be making it sound. But the reality remains 
that as we make a commitment to practice faith, our faith is in fact tested. And so, as I've mentioned, while I still have my questions and doubts about whether God is actively testing people, I do think we can confidently say that the reality is we face our faith faces tests and we are brought to points of decision about what it means to live out our faith in Christ. And so there's testing and there's providing. And perhaps no less scandalous than testing is the notion of God's provision in our lives. I mean, as much as this text presents God as tester, it also presents God as provider, right? I mean, to affirm God as provider is to affirm God as the source and giver of life. And so to our modern self-sufficient minds, the notion of God's provision is almost just as offensive, right? I mean, to recognize God as the source of all good gifts when we've worked really hard to earn them kind of flies in the face of our modern sensibilities that are focused on me. And so testing is scandalous to our modern minds, but no less scandalous is the idea that God is the giver of all good gifts, and that God is the source of all life. And of course, what the Old Testament and New Testament do is they present God as provider. God is praised by the psalmist for the goodness of life. God is recognized as the giver of manna to those who wander in the desert. God is regularly acknowledged as being a God who is attentive to the needs of humanity. In fact, the Lord's Prayer also includes the line, Give us this day our daily bread. Recognizing God as the source of all life and sustenance. And so we have these two things that live in tension with one another. Uh, maybe even contradiction, if we might say so, uh, in this passage. There's testing, there's providing, and this is simply how it's presented to us. It's presented to us with a whole bunch of tension. Uh, I've been eating lunch with a Lutheran friend of mine. He's a Lutheran pastor, and he says Lutherans just love to live in tension. Like a lot of the other denominations just feel like they have to try to solve the tension. And he's like, Lutherans just like go in the tension and just live there. Like they make a home in the tension. <laughs> so let's put on our Lutheran hats this morning and kind of like live in the tension, right? And just kind of recognize it and embrace it. There's testing and there's providing. And this is just how the text is given to us. Let me hypothesize that there might be a reason why the text is presented with these tensions and these contradictions. First, we need to recognize, and I've not mentioned this up to this point in the series, but we need to recognize that Genesis, before it was written down, was passed down as oral tradition. Which is to say, it was not written down first, it was spoken and passed down through generations before it was ever written down. So the stories that we have in Genesis were stories that were being told by grandmas and grandpas and parents to their children and their grandchildren so that it would pass down through generations. And ultimately what happened is when the authors went to put pen to paper and to solidify these stories, they had to make some interpretive decisions about how are we going to tell these stories that are gonna be helpful. And Genesis was written down after Israel, the people of Israel, had experienced what P.N.s calls the numbing national tragedy of Babylonian exile. So Genesis, it has all these stories, this collection of stories, it's being passed down orally, right, 
through grandmas and grandpas and parents, and then it goes to like authors to like kind of put pen to paper and write these down. But this people had just gone through Babylonian exile, and they've got all questions, all kinds of questions about who God is, and they've got all kinds of tensions that they're living in the middle of. And it turns out that maybe, perhaps, they wrote this story with some tension in it to reflect the tension that they themselves were living in. They had questions about God's goodness. In other words, they were asking the question, is God trustworthy? And they had questions about God's faithfulness. In other words, they were asking questions like, is God reliable? Will God provide? Perhaps this story is formed in this way because it is asking these important questions, just as we are. Turns out these are universal questions. Is God trustworthy? Will God provide? I won't ask for a raise of hands, but I imagine all of us would say we've been in situations in our life when we were like, in this moment, in this circumstance, in this situation, can I trust God? Will God, in fact, provide what I need? There's a sense in which, in the passage, it isn't just Abraham whose faith is being tested. Could it also be that the faithfulness of God is on trial in some way? That this passage points us to this reality of it isn't just Abraham's faith that is tested, but there is this question, in fact, of will God provide? Or will Abraham be forced to go through with this? And ultimately what we find is that inside of this tension that the authors are speaking into it and they're pointing us both to the faithfulness and the obedience of, of Abraham, right? And they're also pointing us to the faithfulness of God. It's a both and. It's in tension with one another. The text is written perhaps to highlight both. And so the question is then that we've been asking in this series is where do we find Jesus? If we don't find Jesus just simply in maybe the obvious foreshadowing way of Jesus becomes the ram sacrificed instead of us, but we want to kind of deepen our understanding, then where do we find Jesus? Well, first, I think we find Jesus in the fact of God's faithfulness. Other, again, let's enter the cultural moment for, for a minute. And that cultural moment is that ancient gods, as they were understood and perceived by our ancient brothers and sisters, commonly asked for things like child sacrifice. It's a terrible thing to say, to utter out loud, right? But in that cultural moment, that's where they were at. And these ancient gods would often require that. Perhaps that's the reason that Abraham responds in such a flippant way to our modern minds of like, how can he accept this? How is this reasonable? But to an ancient mind, it would be like, this is what the gods require. And yet what God does is reveal God's self as being one who doesn't allow it to go through. Amen. And there is exactly where we find Jesus, the one who calls upon us to live in ways that are peaceful, the nonviolent Christ 
is revealed to us in the God who refused to allow Abraham to go through with it. Amen. In other words, we find just this sense of this movement toward this understanding of the character of who God is. God is not like those other gods. The God Yahweh is not like those other ancient gods who require this. And that's why the laws of Israel will go on and say, this is an utterly evil practice. See, way back when, I didn't even allow Abraham to go through with it. And so we see Jesus and the peaceful nature of Christ foreshadowed in a God who provides. Amen. There's also another way that we can find Jesus here. There's testing. There's providing. There's testing. There's providing. It seems to me, or it occurs to me, that Jesus faced an incredible test in the Garden of Gethsemane. Seeing what lied before him, Jesus prayed, God, if there is any other way to accomplish what you are setting out and purposing to accomplish, then let it be so. Let this, let this, come, let this pass. Let this not come to me. Let this not be my fate. If there is any other way to accomplish what you are setting out to accomplish, then let's do that, right? Jesus is facing a test. But it turns out that there was no other way. There was no other way to expose the sinful and evil process of scapegoating than for an innocent man to become the scapegoat. There was no other way to end the cycle of violence and vengeance that humanity had been lost in except for someone, the very flesh of God, to be made subject to violence and respond with forgiveness. There was no other way to defeat sin and evil other than for the innocent Christ to become subject to that sin and evil and expose it for the grotesque reality that it is. This is what the cross is about. It is not about Jesus protecting us from a judgmental, angry, violent God. It is about God inhabiting the person of Jesus Christ and revealing the grace and forgiveness and the peace of Christ to the world. Amen? And so Jesus was brought to a moment of testing. And when he said, if there is any other way to accomplish what you are setting out to accomplish, and then in the moment when he realized there is no other way, he follows through with it. He, reveal, he takes evil upon himself and responds with forgiveness and in so doing refounds the world on an axis of love. Amen. And the church and those who call themselves Christians are then invited to live on that axis, to live according to the ways of love in the world. For this is what Jesus has shown us. So Jesus was brought to a point of testing and responded in obedience. And God, in the midst of the testing, 
also provided. Not in saving Jesus from death, but in bringing Jesus to resurrection. This is the provision of God at the cross. The ultimate provision from the God of life is to bring life after death. Jesus' death on the cross and all of its exposing of evil and its defeating of sin and its offering forgiveness and this whole way of life that Jesus had been preparing us for and he used a shorthand phrase to talk about it called the kingdom of God. And all of this way of gaining victory wasn't by power over but by coming under to serve, right? That the, the true victory was gained not through strength as we would understand it, but through service and through becoming subject to evil and death to expose it for what it is. That whole way of seeing the world, that whole way of acting in the world is vindicated in the resurrection. And the people of God said, amen. But isn't it so easy in our world to believe narratives that run counter to that? Isn't it so easy to believe that as the people of God, we need to have this and this and this and kind of strong man syndrome. But this is not what's revealed to us on the cross. What's revealed to us on the cross is that true victory looks like one becoming subject to violence, responding in forgiveness, and being vindicated through resurrection. Amen. There's testing. And there's providing. The resurrection is the ultimate provision of God for our salvation. Thanks be to God. And so this text in Genesis 22 troubles me. On the surface, it's hard. It's difficult. It, is, it, is, it flies against our, our own modern moral compass of how can this be okay? And yet there's deeper meaning. And there we can find Jesus. Um, part of the reason that I want to do this series is to help equip you for reading the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament at different points can be very hard. <laughs> this is not the only passage that, that we kind of come across and say, Woo. And, and a lot of times what we are given simply is um, we kind of like God gets a uh, free hall pass, right? Like God can just like, we kind of excuse a lot of the difficult passages in the Old Testament when all the things that God is credited with, with, well, he's God. And, and so what I want to give you is a, a way of reading scripture that says, hey, if this flies against your modern moral sensibilities and you find yourself saying, can God do that? Um, then maybe there's a deeper way to read the text. Maybe there's a new way of understanding the text. And I think we can find it if we have Jesus anchoring our understanding. We're looking through the scriptures, like we look at the Old Testament through the lens of Christ and we say, Holy Spirit, would you lead me and show me how I can understand this passage in light of the living word, Jesus. Does this make sense? Are you with me? All right. So rest assured, today, 
Uh, this week, certainly this month, you will face tests. You will face a test about what it means to live out your faith in Christ. Some big, some small. But where you are given the opportunity to follow in the way of Jesus or not. So rest assured that will happen. There will be testing. But also rest assured there will be provision. Because there's testing and there's providing. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we come before you humbled and praying that your Holy Spirit would lead us into greater understanding of your scriptures. God, the Bible is a uh, big and complex book and can often lead us to be confused. And, and so, God, we need, um, we need your Holy Spirit to provide wisdom. And we need to know that the purpose of the scriptures is to point to Jesus, who is the full revelation of God. And so, God, we thank you for Christ, who shows us your character. And may we, as your people, begin, uh, infilled by your Holy Spirit, may we embody your ways, embody your character in the world. May we bear witness also to this Christ. May we also bear witness to your goodness, your faithfulness, your grace, your love in the world. And we don't always do this perfectly. We often are kind of captured by narratives of power, narratives of wealth, and, and God um, help us to know and to recognize that um, those are not the most powerful things in the world. Um, there are forces greater than uh, the narratives that have been given to us, and we find those in this beautiful story. And so God, help us to live according to your way, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.